In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There's a new book that came out um, about two weeks ago by the British journalist, uh, someone I admire quite a bit, named Will Storr. And the book is called The Status Game. The Status Game. And one of the things he says in this book is that human beings are extraordinarily imaginative creatures who can use almost anything to symbolize status. Almost anything. Now he gives a list, and I'll give my own list. Uh, obviously there's money, in social media followers, there's neighborhood, there's taste in literature or music, dinner party invitations, advanced degrees, political views, body mass index, golf handicap, uh, busyness, You're, how busy are you? The brand of shoes you wear, where your kids go to school, who gets to go on a private trip to space first, um, and who sees through status games the quickest, right? I don't know what it is for you, but it is something. Um, we turn things into good things, into status games, almost, almost automatically. Uh, you could even say we turn, some of us turned the pandemic into a status game. I was talking to someone last week who says, you know, I just wanted to win the pandemic. I really felt it was important that I came out of this, that my, my, my not only okay, but that my church was doing better than ever. My family was at its peak and my career was crushing it. So we try to win the pandemic. And those of us in the church, of course, are not immune to this at all. Um, there are all sorts of status games we play, from uh, things like attendance and tithing to how many mouths we feed and uh, you know how much how much we give away, who we serve, all sorts of things. So um, these these status games are almost built into our brains. You know, they take place between groups of people, between you know football teams and universities, and they take place within. You know, status, status happens within uh, groups, uh, you know, within families even, I think. Who, who is the most beloved child, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's more of a question, according to Will Storr, not if we're playing status games, but which ones we're playing. Which ones we're playing. Um, today, we've come to a passage in the gospel where it turns out the disciples played status games. And boy, did they ever. They get caught in the middle of one. Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the way? And they say, we were arguing about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? Now, this is right after the transfiguration. And Christ has been revealed in glory. And uh, Moses and Elijah are next to him. And then they come down from the mountain and there's a miraculous healing. So if you were a disciple, if you were one of Jesus's close followers, you might have thought, you know, we really hit, we're on the gravy train. This thing is, this elevator is going to the top. And if it's going to the top, I want to be at the very top of it. So I don't think, by the way, that it was sort of Peter looking at, at John and saying, you know, I think I'm better than you. Or Mark looking at Matthew and saying, actually, I think I'm, I'm a little bit better than you are. I don't think that was probably how it went down. I think this is Jesus um, knowing what they were really talking about. Because status games, you see, they rarely happen on the surface. 
These are conversations that go on within us and around us all the time, but they're rarely right there on top. It's more, how did you spend your summer? Oh, really? Which beach did you go to? Huh, that's interesting. Well, I went to this other beach, which is much fancier. You know, um, I got clearly a lot more vacation than you did. Oh, well, I didn't because I, I work much harder than you do because I'm better than you. You know, it's, these, these things are always, we can infer them even when they're not there. It's a subtext. It's a subtext to many of our discussions. Oh, you served in the military? Well, did you see any action? Um, this is not just today. It may be supercharged by Charlottesville, Virginia. It may be supercharged by technology. It may be supercharged by simply affluence. I don't know what, but if there was a, if Will Storr in his book references a 1948 uh, anthropologist named William Bascom. And William Bascom uh, tells of a Micronesian island called Pohnpei, where there was a status game that was played with yams. Yes, that's right. The men of Pohnpei would furiously compete for who could grow the largest yam. Uh, and so they would raise around 50 of these yams in secret every year in sort of overgrown remote plots that they would creep out of bed in the middle of the night to tend to. And a single one of these yams could take 10 years to grow, reach more than four meters in length, weigh over 90 kilograms, and require 12 men to carry into the feast using a stretcher. So they weren't kidding around. But at the feast, the, the guy with the, with the largest yam would be declared number one. So this is not just uh, you know, today, and it's not just on Facebook. This is all the time in all places, which means to you, if you are a person who's caught up in status games and you think you're the only one, you're not. Everyone is. We're playing them right now. And what a relief that is to know, at least, that, that we're not the only ones who seem to feel like we're jockeying for position all the time. We're afraid of losing the position we do have. Why do we do it? Why are status games so alluring? What is it that we like about them? Well, um, in just the most simple terms imaginable, everyone needs to feel like they're worth something. We all ask the question, do I matter? And we ask it all the time. We ask it of our loved ones, and we ask it of society, and we ask it of our bank account, and we ask it of our boss. We ask it uh, of, the, of our phone. We need to know that we're enough. So we feel like we need to win some kind of game. If we're losing one game, well then we change the game to find one that we can possibly win or at least be competitive in. So if you're a kid and you know it turns out you're not so great in the classroom, well then maybe you can be good on the sports field. Or if you're not good on the sports field, well perhaps physical appearance is the place where you can stand out. Or if your physical appearance isn't really uh, gonna happen, then uh, you could be the funniest. Um, if that's not working, well then you can be the one who sees through everything. Uh, or if you can't see through everything, well, then you just get really sad. And <laughs> people who don't feel like they can win anything, uh, it has dire consequences for your mental and emotional health. You see, status, we're so addicted to it, we're so drawn to it, because we see it as a means of love. Not just value, but love. We see it as we are loved according to status. Now, what we find out, and what every single wisdom tradition will tell you, and what every uh, experience of yours will tell you, is that status games are shell games. They don't work. 
It, the, the love and value we believe that our status will deliver us, it, it never comes. It, it just, there's, we know this on our heads, but it rarely comes to our hearts. But we saw an amazing example of that this past week or two weeks ago. Maybe you follow tennis, I don't know, but the, the most recent U.S. Open, uh, the great Japanese-American champion is Naomi Osaka. She's the highest paid female athlete in the world. She's quite something. She won the U.S. Open in 2018 and 2020. Well, she's had a lot of struggles this year with mental health, and she was beaten in the third round this year, and she held a press conference afterwards, because this is big news. Why? She's, she's been struggling, and we want to know what's going on. And what she said, she said something like this. She said, she said exactly this. She said, I feel like for me recently, when I win, I don't feel happy. I feel more like a relief. And then when I lose, I feel very sad. I don't think that's normal. And then she starts crying. She says, I honestly don't know when I'm going to play my next tennis match. So here you have the report from the top of the mountain, the person who did win, who was the, t who the, the, the gazillions of dollars came to her, the prize and the acclaim, and yet it just ushers in a situation where maintenance becomes so crushing that you just want to give it up altogether. So there's not really hope in that direction, much as I wish there was. So what does Jesus say? Well, he, he lays out a completely different order. He says something very different, and it's just as simple. He says it a lot, by the way. He says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then to illustrate his point, he takes a child on his lap and says, whoever welcomes this one in my name welcomes me. Now, don't think of a child as like an Instagrammable, um, you know, cute child. Think of a child in tatters, a child who's been overlooked, a child who's been neglected, a child with a very runny nose and sticky fingers, and sort of a gross child. <laughs> you know, we tend to venerate children so much we forget how disgusting they are. Um, uh, if you want to be first, Jesus says, then be like this child who is last. This child who is powerless, who's dependent, who has no political or economic power. You see, what Jesus is trying to drive home, the point he's trying to drive home, is that the Christian answer we find to value, to the question of whether we matter, is not in status. It's in belovedness. It's not in status, but in belovedness. And what he's trying to say is you are loved like this child is, unconditionally and eternally, in spite of the fact that you bring nothing to the table, in spite of the fact that you are losing and will lose whatever status game it is that you are, you are wrapped up in. And this is the one, of course, who is willing to lose every status game for your sake. The one who actually had claim to, to God-like status and yet considered it not something to be prideful about. Now, one illustration that I'm finished, perhaps you've heard of the English politician John Profumo. He was a very infamous name in the 1960s. John Profumo was a very high-born aristocratic Secretary of State for War in the early 1960s in the UK. And he uh, had an extramarital affair with a 19-year-old young woman who was also engaged in an affair with a Russian attaché who turned out to be a spy. And so when this was found out, and it was found out in spectacular fashion with photographs and, and all sorts of you know, sort of pre-tabloid, you know, the British love their tabloids. Well, this is, you know, that on steroids. And um, the, the archetypal version of that, he was humiliated on every front page. 
as an adulterer, a liar, and a man of such poor judgment and irresponsibility that he mindlessly cavorted with enemy spies. So he was disgraced and stripped of all public dignities in 1963, and it was known as the Profumo Affair. And over the years, whenever English want to, to refer to people who have really blown it, they use his name. Now, John Profumo never knew political power again, and he never asked for it. He did something that was confounding if you ever trace the lineage of disgraced politicians. What he did was the very hardest thing for any politician, celebrity, uh, preacher, or author to do. Uh, he went away, like really went away. He went to a place that helped the poor, a rundown settlement called Toynbee Hall in the east end of London. And there he did social work, and not just the good stuff, he did the scut work. He washed dishes and he cleaned toilets. He visited prisons for the criminally insane. And it wasn't for show. It wasn't a step on the way to some political redemption. He, he, uh, he didn't give interviews. He never wrote a book. He didn't go on television. And yet it slowly became known what was going on at Toynbee Hall. He simply worked there, by the way, for 40 years. And so much so that it, when Margaret Thatcher turned 70 in 1995, the who's who of the British establishment was invited. And they decided to invite Profumo. But they decided to show him what they really thought of him. And so Profumo is ushered in, and they think you're going to seat him. He just barely got, you know, sort of paying lip service to this man. He's going to sit on the, you know, the outskirts of the affair. And instead, uh, they bring him uh, right to the sit next to Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth, at her right hand, the seat of highest honor. And this is what how Profumo was regarded. In 2006, the Daily Telegraph wrote when he died in 91, he said, no one in public life ever did more to atone for his sins. No one behaved with more silent dignity as his name was repeatedly dragged through the mud and few have ended their lives as loved and revered by those who knew him. You see, he fell off the ladder of status. He completely had it all taken from him and what he discovered was something much more potent than status. He discovered love. He discovered, more than that, he discovered Jesus Christ. You see, you and I know, is this just some lengthy sermon about giving up your status and renouncing your club memberships? No, if I tried to do that, it wouldn't work. You know, I've, I've never seen someone I, uh, not accept uh, admittance to the highest status uh, college that they get into or club or what have you. Every year I watch as people pretend to, but it never happens. Um, because they're like me. Um, it's very, very rare to turn down status. It's that addictive and that intoxicating. But where you can't and where I can't, it turns out Jesus nonetheless does. Jesus, when he pulls that child to his lap, he's ultimately talking about himself. He's saying, whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. You see, I am last. I am the one who is betrayed into human hands, who is killed, and three days later rises again. I am the one who came not to consolidate godlike status, but to give it away to those who are hell-bent on accruing it at all costs. That is not putting me off from loving you. I am here to descend to a world that is asphyxiating itself, trying to ascend to free you and to free me from the bondage of status, from the shell games that cannot be won. And to answer the question, the ultimate question, always on our mind, the question of do I matter? 
Do I matter, Lord? Well, what he says to you and to me this morning is yes. Yes, you matter, my child. You matter so much. You matter this much. Pointing at the cross. Amen.